Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to another edition of Around the Coin. My name is Faisal Khan. I'm your host for this show. You can't seem to read any fintech blog or magazine without the mentioning of the word financial inclusion. Depending on whom you talk to, the number of financially excluded people in the world is anywhere from 1.5 billion people to 2.5 billion people. The World Bank Group defines financial inclusion as individuals and businesses that have access to useful and affordable financial products and services that meet their needs. These are such as transactions, payments, savings, credit and insurance delivered in a responsible and sustainable way. So who banks the unbanked and the underbanked? Well, most of this is done through microfinance banks. These microfinance banks basically offer a very specialized category of financial services to those who lack access to conventional banking and related services. One such institution that is helping solve this problem of the underbanked and unbanked is Finca. Finca's network of 20 community-based microfinance institutions and banks worldwide use financial technology or fintech to expand financial inclusion offering innovative, responsible, and impactful financial services to low-income clients. I'm very honored to have Andre Simon, who is the president and CEO of Finca Impact Finance, based out of Washington, D.C., on the show here today. Hey, Andre, how are you? I'm great, Faisal. How are you? Doing good. So tell us a little bit about who you are, so for our viewers. Okay, so my name is Andre Simon. Uh, I am the president and CEO of Finca Impact Finance, and today I am speaking with you from Washington, D.C. And before we get into the organization itself, uh, how did you end up where you are over here? What's your, what's your uh, backstory, if you will? Yeah, um, so I started out my career actually in economic research. Um, I was focused on securities markets development and corporate governance issues, and I very quickly realized that it was the bankers who had the most influence over um, policy, and particularly, um, I was very focused on social impact. So I got myself to business school, and I I did an MBA uh, in finance and worked in the financial services industry, um, but still hadn't found that real social institution that I was looking for. And uh, a very close friend of mine said, I think you need to speak with these people at Finca. Uh, And so I did. And I was immediately captivated 
by the double bottom line uh, of the institution. The fact that there was a group of people who believed that they could not only deliver social impact, but that they could do it um, sustainably was incredibly compelling to me. And so I have spent the bulk of my career uh, here at Finca working to serve clients across 20 countries in the world. So what does Finca stand for, by the way? So Finca stands for the Foundation for International Community Assistance. It was founded in 1984 um, as a nonprofit organization, um, but the objective of the institution has not changed um, over the 35 plus years of our existence. Um, it has always been to help people who are financially marginalized um, have access to the financial tools that they need in order to lift their families and themselves out of poverty. So, I mean, you know, what's the classical definition of what a social impact would be, especially from a financial point of view? Well, you know, I think all banking is fundamentally social. <laughs> but, um, you know, we are really looking to achieve um, an improvement in the quality of people's lives that is permanent. Um, we want to make sure that the products and services that we are offering, just like any other social enterprise, um, are, are actually creating um, a positive dividend uh, for society. And so I think that's the cleanest definition that I could come up with. And essentially, you are a bank, but a very different type of a bank, right? Can you explain that? We are a very different type of a bank. Um, so yes, the products and services that we provide are the same as most other institutions. We offer credit, we offer deposits and payments and remittances etc. Um, but we aim to help people predominantly in developing countries who have very limited access to financial resources because they themselves have very limited assets, um, uh, get that access and make investments um, in enterprises that are going to have, um, again, themselves sustainable returns that they can use the proceeds of to buy medicine, put their children through school, um, improve the quality of their homes. Um, so the, the majority of our over 2.2 million clients around the world um, live on around $3,500 a year. Um, in, in the case of, of Pakistan, um, those numbers can even be significantly lower. Um, and we feel that that's a really critically important space for us to be in because traditional commercial banks um, don't typically serve those clients. Um, and most of those clients haven't had any experience or haven't had very good experiences um, with traditional commercial institutions. And so we are there to bridge that gap. So you're essentially what uh, they would call a microfinance bank, a bank that does micro lending deals with a much lower average revenue per user, much lower deposits, and more importantly, reaches out at the grassroots levels in the rural areas and goes and tries to make clients of essentially citizens who are unbanked. Is that correct? That's exactly right. Um, you know, there are still, um, even though there have been a lot of improvements in terms of financial access around the world, there are still 1.7 billion people out there who don't have access to financial services. And, um, you know, it's important, I think, 
most people, when they think of microfinance, um, think about credit, but actually a, a really big focus for us is also on deposits. Um, we feel very strongly that for people to be financially well, um, which ultimately makes them, you know, more stable citizens and more productive citizens, um, they need to have the opportunity to um, save so that they can get through their own shocks if someone falls ill um, or someone dies or they've got to pay for a wedding. Um, they need to have the opportunity to invest, which means, yes, they need access to credit and they need to have that savings pool that they can call on. Um, and, and then they need to meet their day-to-day -day financial needs, which means you know, having the ability to transact at as low a cost as we can possibly offer them. So how does that formula work? I mean, how do you go into a rural area, into a farmland, and you have people who who have an understanding, a basic understanding of, let's say, money, uh, mm -hmm. but don't necessarily understand, you know, how credit works, how lending works, and more importantly, the mission statement that you have, you know, if we get them banked, you know, their lives will inherently improve the how do they get the how that they how their lives will improve you know I, I, it reminds me of a quote bill gates said which is now quoted everywhere else in the world you know a uh, banking is useful b bankers are no, what was it banking is useful and bankers are not or something like that yes it, yeah exactly um it, well i i mean i, th I think there's um a, a lot of truth to that um and, and that's why that that quote has has made its way around um you know, first of all, I will say that I think that most of our clients understand money as well as or better than most people who are living in the developed world um, because they have to make very sharp use of the limited resources that they have. Um, they're not as familiar with financial services. And so um, we do spend a lot of time um, talking to our clients about what it means to take on a liability and having to pay back a loan and how important it is to be able to serve um, the, the payments associated with that. But we also talk to them a lot about savings. And, um, you know, I think a lot of people mistakenly believe that if someone is living in poverty that they don't have the capacity to save. Uh, but savings is a relative thing, and everyone actually has the capacity to save something. Um, and building that discipline is ultimately what helps us to protect people against the next shock that they're going to have to go through. Um, so I've seen people uh, in, for example, um, the Democratic Republic of Congo um, who are, are making very little money every single year, but who have been able to amass um, pretty sizable savings accounts. Um, and, you know, they never knew that that was possible before, but they've gotten a lot of encouragement and they've also had the capacity to do that. So I, I want to go back to the, the fundamental question that you asked around the model and how it works, um, because I think that is the most important thing to understand, particularly when we talk about what technology is now making possible. Um, you know, it, it is a very labor intensive model. It always has been. And there's still a big component of it that is labor intensive because um, we do travel out to the communities that we're serving. And as you said, a lot of them are rural communities um, and we have 
credit officers and other staff who spend a sizable portion of their time um, communicating directly with clients and doing that live coaching and talking to people about what it means to have a bank account. Um, and that's always been in some ways the, the advantage of microfinance because other more commercial institutions um, don't want to take um, that level of cost on and don't see a lot of value in it because the margins are very, very thin. Um, but it's also the Achilles heel, obviously, because it is an expensive model. Um, but that's why it's a social impact organization and not just a pure commercial organization. Uh, we are doing something different and we are doing something more. Who is who, after who is this modeled after, you know, the microfinance? Is it after the Grameen Bank in Bangladesh or was it much before that? Well, um, so I, I would be doing a great disservice to my founders if I let you think that it was modeled after the, the Muhammad Yunus's wonderful Grameen Bank model, but it, it was certainly um, around the same time, um, and and they did. Which is the early? Well, I mean, late seventies was the time when basically the microfinance surf. Exactly. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Okay, yeah. okay. Um, and so, you know, there were a lot of really brilliant minds, um, and, and I have the greatest respect for Dr. Yunus. I think he's amazing. Um, but, you know, a lot of people were, were toying around with the same idea and basically said, um, the capacity to repay is there. And it's simply that the traditional credit model doesn't see the, that the risk is actually lower than we think it is. Um, and, and certainly when you look at microfinance performance from a risk perspective, um, and it doesn't matter whether you look at Finca or, or any of the other microfinance providers, um, traditionally the default rates have been very low. Um, part of that is because we rely heavily on this um, notion of community, whether it is that there is an explicit cross guarantee or um, because we are working, our staff live and work side by side with a lot of the clients that we serve. And so there's kind of a social accountability that comes along with a lot of those financial services um, that is a really important ingredient um, in making sure that people are going to repay. So you guys have been in this for a long time now. So what, I mean, and, and, you know, you certainly have what we would call an institutional memory. You know what works and what doesn't work uh, in, in majority of the ways. How has it helped people uplift? I mean, a newly, let's say, established family signs up for microfinance or microcredit. Do they really use that loan and rebuild and increase their wealth statement? Too many, it would seem like, you know, no, 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 this is just like a social service kind of a thing. But does that impact, does that really lift them out of poverty? Yeah, so that, that um, Faisal, I think is the question of the day. Um, so, so it's a complex answer and one that I would like to deconstruct a little bit for, for the sake of um, the, the debate Absolutely. and, and sure. also for your listeners. Um, so there have been a, a lot of great research done, um, and uh, I'm sure you know that, that Esther Duflo and, and Banerjee um, just recently won the Nobel Prize for, for their own efforts um, with respect to, to microfinance and poverty alleviation. 
there's been a lot of fantastic research done and um, some of it was conflicting. Um, there was early research done that said, uh, actually, we, we don't think that there's really an effect at all of these microfinance services having been provided. And then later um, uh, research that had been vetted a bit more um, found that, in fact, um, there was a, a modest benefit associated with microfinance services. And I think that that's just the truth. Um, you know, and, and the context for that, I think, is hugely important. So, you know, the, the pure capitalist perspective would like to look at every single human being as a budding entrepreneur and say that they are all going to be able to progress to be tycoons. Um, but the reality is that most individuals um, take on microcredits and um, other, you know, credit services. Um, because they have small businesses and they want to be able to have a reliable cash flow and meet the needs of their families. And so you don't see this exponential growth of people's wealth. Um, they aren't necessarily all tycoons. Um, but what we have been able to document is that there is a modest improvement and people are able to send their children to school and they are able to cover the cost of medicine, and um, they are not necessarily, and some of them are, and I'm really proud of the ones who have grown their businesses to be, you know, 20, 30 employees, um, but most of our clients are people who are self-employed, who have a small business, and really what they're looking for is basic financial security and the ability to, to keep those businesses going and make sure that they can provide for the basic needs of their families. And the other side of it that I think merits discussion is that financial services alone is not an adequate answer. Um, it is a component of the answer to helping people lift themselves out of poverty. And this is why I think Finca International's work on other social enterprises, Finca International being our founding organization and a, a nonprofit organization, is so important. Um, you know, there are health issues that affect our clients. There are sanitation issues that affect the health and wellness of our clients. Um, th there are um, uh, education issues that affect um, whether or not our clients are really going to be able to capitalize um, on access to financial services. And so um, we specialize in the financial services side of the equation. Um, if we want to see a much more radical improvement in people's quality of lives, then um, other services are also going to be need to be accessible to individuals to really help them lift themselves out of poverty because as I said it's you know it's not a silver bullet um, but it is a very effective tool and it is a necessary tool if we want to have a chance of actually giving people that first step on that ladder out of poverty. I spoke to someone today regarding Grameen Bank and, you know, I got a very, um, let's say, skewed response as to the success of it. So the person mm -hmm. obviously doesn't want, you know, their institution or their name to be uh, <laughs> go on air. But suffice to say, they said something very interesting, and that was, it is work in progress. 
Yeah. Uh, and I asked, well, how can it be work in progress for something that was started in the 70s? He says, Faisal, you have to understand, we started in the 70s. By the time it gained traction, it took literally 10 years. By the time it gained traction, government policies, it's interwoven with the banking and the regulations of every country, which sort of acts as somewhat of as a catalyst or spice in this recipe. And he says, by the way, no one has the recipe correct yet. But just when you think you're getting the recipe correct, you know, income changes, telecommunication changes, geopolitical changes, uh, the internet, the crowdfunding aspect, the uh, mobile, you know, uh, telecom carriers getting into the mobile money business. He says, just when we sort of, you know, think we've re- 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 we've reached our goal someone moves the marker or the goal posts are adjusted what's your comment on that uh well i th- i think that you talk to someone who has um pretty good visibility into the industry <laughs> um i think that's absolutely true uh look we started as nonprofit institutions around the world um, and there are wonderful things about being nonprofit institutions, um, but there are also lots of limitations associated with being nonprofit institutions. And, and I think the most important one is that you can't really offer people a full range of financial services. Um, and you can't take on investment capital, which means that your ability to serve people is really going to be limited to um, the amount of profit that you can make, that you can reinvest into the business, and also to ongoing donations. And, and that wasn't our aim. Our aim was really to create um, something that would be a, fa- a part of the fabric of, of the countries that we work in forever. And so we had to take on transforming all of these institutions into investable entities. And then we had to find investors who were willing to take on the risk of emerging markets and willing to take on the risk of um, this very specialized poverty-focused financial services activity. Um, and, and then we had to convince commercial lenders um, to, to make loans to us by, again, showing over time that it was a sustainable and profitable business. Um, and I think it, it is something that's very much in evolution. But what's interesting to me about it is that, that social motivation um, re- remains in a, you know, a core element of, of what's being provided. And I think that when you look at what has happened in financial services in the most developed markets, where people have almost 100% access, but in fact, um, they have been to some extent impoverished by over access to consumer debt um, and, and to credit um, this notion that actually we want to make sure that people are going to be benefiting from access to financial services and improving the quality of their life um, is something that we have to protect and preserve. And, and I'm personally um, very excited to be operating in markets like we are in Pakistan and other places because I think we have the ability to do things differently. And the niche that Finca and others like us operates in is with that very strong focus of transparency and having clients clearly understand what they're taking on and coaching them to make sure that um, they're investing the proceeds from any loan that they take into something that's actually going to create a net benefit for them. 
Um, we don't get it perfect 100% of the time. And I think it is a work in progress. And particularly now with this emphasis on digital banking, um, we are probably facing one of the greatest opportunities, but also potentially the greatest existential crisis um, that we've ever faced um, as an industry overall, because the strength of our model rests on that relationship of our client that we have with our clients and the knowledge that we have of the existence of our clients. And if we move into a purely digital realm, um, I think we run the risk of actually isolating individuals um, and not necessarily having the full benefit of that coaching. And so that's the focus for us as an institution as we move into the digital space because it's great for our clients that they can have these low-cost tools and have this increased access. Um, but the question that we are trying to ask and answer right now is, how do you do that in such a way so that even if you don't have that physical connection with your client, you're still ensuring that the information that you're sharing with people is being digested and that you are continuing to be a responsible um, financial services provider um, over a digital platform. And that I can promise you, nobody has cracked the code on yet. Mm. Oh, I agree on that. I have a comment on that, but a little later. Uh, a question that was posed to me is, you know, that, that came to me when I was speaking to all those in this industry is, how well do we understand poverty today? Hmm. That's that's a pretty broad question. Um, how well do we understand poverty I mean, you know, today? I mean, I, if we if we talk about hunger, right? So we know we know yeah. we know what how famine is caused. We know how well do we understand poverty? And obviously, there must be a formula or something or something pretty uh -huh. close resembling a formula that says, "Hey, if you apply these conditions, and you know the Goldilocks conditions are met, right? You know you." you come out of poverty. How well do microfinance banks, how well do telecom, MNOs, you know, and traditional banks understand poverty? Well, certainly some better than others. Um, so I, I'm sure that you have come across the financial diaries um, in all of your work. And um, the, the financial diaries, um, you know, have been done both in the developing world, um, even though the, the focus obviously started in the developed world. And, and I think that, you know, that's something for anyone who's interested in addressing poverty. Um, it's a must read to, to really go, um, look at them because what you see fundamentally is that, um, the risks, um, of poverty exists all across the, the strata of income levels and, and that um, the basic factors that impact people's ability to recover from shocks are the same. Um, I think fundamentally, um, you know, it is obviously health, um, which has lots of component pieces to it in terms of, of people's access to food and, and nutrition. Um, it's sanitation, as I mentioned, um, it's education, of course, as I mentioned. And th that's why I think, you know, anybody who comes and says finance or banking is the solution um, is it, really not fully examining um, what it means to help someone improve their quality of life. 
Um, we've got to be conscious of the fact that clients have a really broad range of other factors that are impacting them. And if for anyone who's in, interested in having a permanent impact, I think it's incumbent on us to understand those influences. Um, Finca certainly on our side does the best that we can um, to make sure that if there are partners who have um, services that clients can access, um, we try to plug them into that. So for example, in the DRC, um, I'm sure you know that health is a massive issue. And so um, our team locally took it upon themselves to form um, a partnership agreement with lots of local hospitals um, and created a kind of a virtual insurance product, for lack of a better word, that allows our clients for a small fee to have access to medical care um, when they need it. And you know, th that's one element, but there are lots of other elements that need to be addressed. We can't, as an institution, address all of those things. And so um, it is really important that we um, reach out to partners in the markets that we operate in. Um, we work very closely with regulators. Um, we are in the business of, of providing those financial services, but I think you have to have that lens that you look through all the time that says, um, you know, how are people able to cope? And it also means for us as an institution um, and for our shareholders um, and partners uh, that we have, a, a, I'd say, a pretty um, high level of consciousness around when macroeconomic situations become very challenging and, and difficult um, or when there are floods or when there are earthquakes or when there are natural disasters, um, you know, w we try to have as flexible an approach as we possibly can with people because, um, you know, again, yes, we are in the business of being a sustainable institution and I do have investors and, and we want to make sure that we continue to attract new investors to help us fight this battle. Um, but our, our mission is that double bottom line and we want to do our very best to make sure that um, within our ability, you know, we help people in a situation when we can. So Andre, in the markets that you already operate in, by the way, how many markets are you operating in? Can you name them? I, I, I can name them, but there are 20. Um, I, I'm happy to go through the list. I'll give you the regions to start with. So um, we, Africa, we operate in Africa, um, predominantly in East Africa. Um, and then we operate in the Eurasia region, um, which is a broad region for us. Um, I think the furthest east that we have is Kyrgyzstan, um, going back uh, through all of the countries around the Fergana Valley in the Caucasus, all the way over to Kosovo. Um, in Latin America, um, we are in Central America, but also in Haiti and in Ecuador. And then we are in Jordan, Afghanistan, and last but definitely not least, in Pakistan. So it's a very broad footprint um, with a lot of different cultures, obviously, included in our network. So what's the penultimate goal for you and your investors? I mean, you as the organization, is it growing horizontally or is it growing vertically? So, I mean, you have a user base in each market. Do you now see the unbanked or the underbanked as the low-hanging fruit or do you see your existing uh, market size and saying, how can I sell more and better services to them? How, how can I integrate them more vertically? What's the position that you take? 
Um, well, so this is not a cop-out answer, but the, the honest truth is both. Um, so, so, you know, there are a lot more people who just need the basic services that we can offer to them. And we really do want to continue to expand horizontally and include more and more people in our client base. Um, but having said that, um, what we have realized is that we get a much more profound impact when we can also integrate vertically. Um, we have partnered with, for example, um, uh, commercial depositors um, who are themselves very focused on having a positive social impact and um, will come to us and, and put a portion of their deposits into our financial institutions because they want also to have an impact on poverty and job creation. And that has helped us in, in many of the countries that we operate in because it's given us those ties to the community. Um, it's helped us, of course, with the stability of our institutions. Um, and it's created other opportunities um, to bring people into the, the, the banks that we run um, that themselves can create employment opportunities for our other clients. And so we've really been pursuing both of those goals at the same time. Um, you know, the, the evolution of this institution, I think, is still focused um, more on the horizontal than on the vertical. Um, but uh, as I mentioned previously, um, particularly as we have moved into um, technology, we've seen a great number of opportunities that allow us to include a much broader client base um, and without fundamentally losing sight of what we want to do, which is uh, really have a long-term impact on poverty. You know, I, for part of my research, I watched a lot of videos, a lot of TED Talks, etc., on the unbanked. And, you know, depending on who you talk to, it's either 2.5 billion, 2 billion, 1.8, 1.7 billion. But it right. seems to me that this number is almost out of reach. The solution is out of reach as to why this number cannot be banked. Is it so that we have now maybe we have to go back to the table and rethink how do we offer a financial services to someone whose demographic, whose character and DNA is inherently different from the ones we are already serving? Because surely with the penetration of mobile and internet, etc., we should have been able to get them by now. But it seems it's a goal that's, like I said, a little out of the reach. Is it that we don't have the new, for, for them, the, the formula for banking, whatever it may be, microfinance banking, regular banking, needs to be rethought of? Your comments on that? Well, I think we're in the process of rethinking that formula as we speak. Um, and absolutely, um, you know, there are a number of reasons why those people still remain financially excluded. Um, what I will say, though, is, you know, when digital financial services first came on the scene in a, in a more meaningful way, um, I was a smitten as anyone else was um, with the prospects of it. And, and clearly, I hope we'll have the chance to talk about the SimSim product that we've launched in Pakistan. Um, I think that digital financial services can have a massive impact on inclusion, and they already have. Um, for one, um, just as an example, and this I think is a very important one, um, you know, 
our clients can only save very, very small amounts at a time. Um, but because they live in remote areas um, and they have limited access to traditional branch infrastructures, if they want to take the dollar that they can save and deposit it, they are going to have to leave their business for a long time. Um, we've tracked it in some of our subsidiaries. It's you know an hour and a half that they have to travel uh, in order to get to the nearest branch. They have to pay for the cost of that transportation. They have to wait um, on average, you know, 20 to 40 minutes in a branch. And then they have to travel all the way home. When you look at that from the customer perspective, it's a non-starter. It's not worth it for them to travel that far distance to save that $1. And so um, what technology has allowed us to do is to enable clients to walk into an agent and deposit that dollar um, in some cases for free, in other cases at a minimal cost, but without that expense that's associated with that traditional infrastructure. And that's a game changer and it's very exciting. On the flip side of it though, um, the, the infrastructure has to be there. And in some countries it is, but in other countries, the penetration of 3G networks um, it's very low still. And so the technology that's required to weave all of that together is not there yet. And we have to keep working on some of those solutions. The other thing is that, and it's related, um, a lot of these economies are still heavily cash-based. And so the idea that we can move to a pure digital ecosystem, we're not there yet. Um, will we get there over time? Um, yes, I believe that we will get there over time, but um, it's going to take infrastructure and it's going to take education and it's going to mean that the cost of access to digital financial services is going to have to be lower, meaning the costs of the phones and the costs of the airtime. Um, and those are all factors that are necessary for us to move to that nirvana of letting people use their money in the way that they see fit with the, you know, the easiest possible interface. And my guess is that, um, you know, just the infrastructure piece alone is going to take us some time to solve. And so what we have done is we've tried to layer on the technology that makes sense for our clients. And we've tried to be um, as, as educational and as transparent with our clients as we possibly can about the benefits that they get from using those digital tools um, without really, um, you know, we, we haven't radically changed our business model yet um, because we're conscious of the fact that, you know, most of our clients still need that cash in and cash out mechanism uh, in order to conduct their day to day business. And how how much how much of how large of a population set in percentage basis of the unbanked lives in this area where the infrastructure is not present? The the vast majority, I'd say. So first, um, when you look at it, um, sub-Saharan Africa has um, a, the worst penetration um, of um, the three G networks. If you look at the GSMA report. Um, and uh, the costs 
associated with accessing, um, you know, the cost of data are still very, very high. And so um, it does put that digital banking um, out of reach or make it very expensive for a lot of clients around the world. Um, and you've got on top of that the fact that agency, um, and this is the case I know in Pakistan and why our digital product there has been so revolutionary, um, a lot of agents are still incredibly expensive, and we've seen that in Africa and, and in Pakistan and in other countries. Um, and so uh, it, it, it does mean that people are, are still, you know, not really fully able to engage. And, and so I think that, um, you know, yes, we have over 55% of our transactions that are now being processed through branch channels around the network. Um, we have over 50% of our transactions in Africa that are going through banking agents. Um, we have almost half of our subsidiaries that are now offering mobile banking solutions. I know that that needs to, to improve even further. Um, but if you look at the statistics, for example, for Sub-Saharan Africa and Latin America, you know, 27% of unbanked people say that they don't have a bank account because they live too far away from the nearest bank. Um, even though we know that cell phone ownership is, is increasing day by day and that the cost of those phones are declining, um, if the network isn't there and the cost of the transactions is too high, um, we're going to have limitations in terms of, of how much impact we can actually expect in the near term. Wow, that's certainly an eye-opener. I want to talk about technology. How is your bank or the bank's member banks interacting with this, you know, this phenomenon or this wave called fintech? Uh, do you see a lot of okay. partnerships happening? Because I'm sure there is, there are many, you know, uh, puzzles to be cracked and solved. And I'm sure some fintechs would like to partner up. And as a microfinance bank, you can offer them the banking rails horizontally, vertically into the banking sector, etc. If you have any examples, that would be great as well. I do. I have lots of examples. Um, so, so, um. You know, the, the big challenge, I think, for most institutions the size of Finca um, has been figuring out partnerships with mobile network operators. Um, and the MNOs themselves have been trying to crack the code on digital financial services. And I think that, that nobody has really done it super well yet. So the And there's friction model, there, right? Oh, there's a lot of friction there, yeah. <laughs> Um, so so the, the traditional kind of MMO-led model um, was really about um, MNOs, at least initially, um, wanting to offer electronic wallets um, so that clients would be less likely to switch providers. And so the, the idea being that, it, you know, the more that you can offer on your service, um, the easier it's going to be for you to retain clients. And I think that um, you know, historically, and there's a lot of data that, that proves this out, as MNOs saw declining revenues from data, um, they became increasingly interested in financial services. And so um, we've had some great partnerships with mobile network operators um, who are really and truly interested in um, helping to, to reach out and include more people in the digital ecosystem. Um, but the friction, I think, fundamentally is around um, what's the interest of an MNO that may have a client base of, you know, 500,000 clients or a million clients that they want to offer financial services to across the board, 
and an institution like Finca that's really very specialized and, and focused on um, trying to help small entrepreneurs um, access a, a broad range of financial services that are pretty tailored to their needs. And so um, we've launched these nine um, M&O um, or mobile offerings. Um, and we've experimented with a lot of different approaches. Um, we've experimented with the savings um, only led model to see if we could offer deposit services to clients um, through a mobile partnership. Um, we have, uh, in the case of um, the, the SimSim partnership in Pakistan, um, we partnered with a fintech company called Finja. Um, and it, they're fantastic, by the way. Um, I think that's probably our, our most successful partnership to date. Um, and in that partnership with Finja, we actually um, developed a, an M&O agnostic model, um, which means then that people can, through the application, um, open a Finca bank account in a very, very quick period of time, irrespective of the network that they're operating on. Um, and I think that, you know, as the, the, the friction, going back to that M&O model, the friction is really around, you know, what's the interest of the M&O versus what's the interest of the institution. And it's very hard to align those. Um, it doesn't mean that you can't, but um, you have to really find the right M&O partner. Um, and, and most of them are, you know, very large, um, very commercially focused organizations. Um, and so what we are finding and learning, I think, is that... Um, Having an, an MNO agnostic model in some cases really is a better solution for our clients because it means that we can speak directly to them um, as opposed to necessarily having to have a, a funnel that takes in a lot of other um, uh, clients that are not necessarily part of our core mission. Um, and I'm certainly not saying no to anything at this point, but, um, you know, as we're going along and learning and refining, um, I think that that that, um, that model is one that's going to lend itself a lot better to meeting the needs of our clients. The challenge of it is that, um, you know, the smartphone versus the dumb phone um, is still a big barrier. Um, so a lot of our clients are still using feature phones. And um, that means that the interface um, for any client over a feature phone is just a lot clunkier and it's a lot more difficult to communicate important information. And so even if you have um, a very thoughtful description of the terms and conditions um, for your clients, if you're working with people who are less literate um, and who are very concerned about, um, you know, the speed of the interaction that they're having because they're worried about the data cost, um, your chance of really communicating important information to them is going to be a lot lower. And so I, I think that for most of us who are interested in that social side, um, it will not be until we have the smartphone in the hands of our clients that we're really going to have the freedom um, to engage in a much better um, education platform and, and really helping them to understand what they're taking on. Because a lot of our clients are, are not literate. Um, and so we use a lot of video with them. Um, we use um, a, a lot of, um, you know, kind of uh, gamification and, and letting people navigate at their own speed. And, and that really, I think, is the ideal. 
Um, but it's hard to do that. You can't do it on a feature phone um, and certainly not at the data cost that people are, are having to experience. So the bridge that we're using right now is tablets. Um, and, and what we have found to be very impactful is um, in those agents um, that we're working with where we have um, close partnerships or where we've got proprietary agents in particular, um, we can have the tablet in the shop so that when the client goes in, um, they can watch the video and get the basics of how do you protect your bank account information and, and what should you be expecting. And, and we can start to communicate with them in a more meaningful way than we could ever possibly do over a feature phone. You know, one of my last comments and questions to you is, you know, the lines are very blurred between regular banking, microfinance, and the cellular carriers. The regulators who regulate and give licenses are usually two separate in, in most cases. The mm -hmm. telecom regulators are different from the banking ones, and they have an agent network, etc. But now we seem to be moving in what is called the open banking standards, the open standards. So, mm -hmm. you know, open switches, open access for all the equal opportunity, how does that fare on your terms? I mean, do you feel that that's going to be an advantage for you going forward, having access to a very large agent network, for example, or not having to rely on a specific, uh, you know, for example, the USSD channels will be open to you, the uh, onboard, on-ramping and off-ramping of money or loading or offloading of money would be available even across competitor agent networks, et cetera. And yet, it also offers the banks, the traditional banks, and the uh, you know the mobile money network operators uh, the wide variety uh, or the space where they can also go and compete. Do you feel see that as a threat? Do you see that as a semi-threat? Uh, where do you see all this going? Considering open banking coming into play. Yeah. Um, okay, well, clearly from the business side, um, it's an opportunity, right? Um, and, and I think that anybody looking at it has to see it that way, that, um, you know, it, it does mean that um, a, a lot of the things that have been very difficult for us to negotiate in the past are potentially going to be less difficult. However, um, the big concern that I have is for the clients. Um, and, and I see that... Um, you know, there are a lot of really open-minded regulators who are incredibly progressive, who want to reduce the friction that clients are facing and get as many people as they can included in financial services. And that's amazing. And I, I want them to continue doing that. But um, my concern, and I know that it's one that m most of my peers in the industry have, and, um, and certainly, um, you know, a lot of uh, the shareholders who are focused on social impact also have, and the regulators have, is that um, it's very hard for regulators to stay on top of all of this. Um, and, and we've seen, for example, um, in East Africa, just, uh, and I'm just talking about the straight, you know, kind of standard digital financial services uh, that's focused on the nano loans um, that are purely consumer debt. Um, we've seen a lot of over indebtedness coming out of that and a lot of people who are getting blacklisted um, uh, in the credit bureaus um, for amounts that are less than $10. 
Um, it, it, I th the worry that I have is one, just the complexity that it creates from a regulatory perspective and how do we make sure that there is a mindset of consumer protection that actually comes in to curb some of this glorious access uh, because we do actually need to take into consideration that people need to be protected from, from predatory lenders. Um, and some of the innovation is, you know, not been tested and, and people are at risk. Um, and then, you know, I can kind of as a related matter, um, we haven't yet seen the massive failure in, in digital financial services, um, it, but I think it, it will come at some point, whether it's through um, a collapse because people are over-indebted um, or, or through something else. And, and my worry on the flip side is that, you know, the regulators are going to um, get very concerned about that and perhaps um, in a desire to protect people, shut down all of the innovation or the bulk of the innovation that is actually driving us towards something that's really productive. And so, you know, for me, um, and, you know, Finca obviously is um, but one player in this whole space, the critical ingredient is really being open about um, our failures and what we've learned and staying in very close contact with the regulators and making sure that we stay true to our primary intention, which is to actually help improve people's lives through the services that we're providing. Um, and, and I believe that, um, you know, we, we can come through any of those challenges if we keep those basic concepts in mind. Um, but a free-for-all um, is not necessarily going to serve clients well, and it's not necessarily going to serve financial services and the health of our markets well. Um, and so we do need to be a bit cautious about um, how we dive off that high dive um, into this new world. Um, and I think the way that we protect everyone is we keep the customer in the center of everything that we do. That's a very valid point. You know, it could be a shallow pool. Who knows? Uh, yeah. <laughs> but I, you know, but it is interesting that you think about the the downside or the downturn that will come, and that is part of business. I mean, cyclical cycles happen, right? I mean, the pattern has to, at some point in time, contract. So that was a very astute uh, observation. I, you know, I really wish we had more time because I feel that you can talk uh, again and again on the subject. But I do want to ask you one question. If we do invite you again, would you come and talk more? Absolutely. I have enjoyed this tremendously, and I will seize any opportunity uh, to talk about our vision and the work that we're doing. So thank you so much, Faisal. No, Andre, thank you very much. Uh, and can, you know, how can people learn more about Finca? And more importantly, how can they get in touch with you if need be? Fantastic. Um, so they can go to our website and um, we're at www.thinkaimpact.com. Um, from there, they can navigate uh, to our Twitter, um, which is also um, something that we pay very close attention to. Um, each of our country operations also has a website, which you can access through um, the main network website. Um, there's lots of information there, and um, I am always happy um, if anyone uh, wants to tweet at us 
um, we'll do our very best to, to get answers back to you as quickly as possible. Thank you very much for your time, madam. Thank you so much. The views and opinions expressed on any program are those of the hosts, co-hosts, and guests appearing on the show and do not necessarily reflect the view of the owners and producers of the show. Paid advertisements in form of audio announcements may appear throughout the show, including this one. Advertising can also include print and other digital formats. The owners and producers of Around the Coin do not endorse or evaluate the advertised product, service, or company, nor any of the claims made by the advertisement. All programs are subject to a one-time charge for professional editing fees, for which the interviewing guest or guests may have contributed towards. The owners, producers, hosts, co-hosts, and guests on the show are not financial advisors. Any investment advice or opinion cited during the show is for information purposes only. None of the content is intended to be investment advice. Seek a duly licensed professional for investment advice. If you believe there's been any violation of your copyright, trademark, service mark, or any other type of intellectual property, please inform us in writing by sending an email to legal at aroundthecoin.com. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner.